I invite you to turn, if you'd like, to your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 35 to uh, 51, and not all of them, but John chapter 6, we'll read verses 35 through 51. Before we read the word and consider it, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, admit that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Because we believe in the Holy Spirit, we can uh, come to you uh, trusting that you will uh, enlighten our minds to receive the truths of your word, that what we look at can fall upon hearts which are receptive to this. And we pray that you would perform a miracle in our lives by your Holy Spirit, a miracle so that none of us will leave here the same as we came in, that we'll all leave changed, that any of us who came in here lost would leave saved, any of us who came in here looking for Christ and wanting to be edified and encouraged already as Christians, that you would accomplish just that. And we pray that you'll do this by the power of your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, John 6 at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. We're going to stop reading right there at the end of verse 47. Thus far, God's word to us, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved people of hope, brothers and sisters, everyone gathered with us here uh, uh, this morning. At the end of uh, chapter 6, we know that uh, Jesus said these things in Capernaum, verse 59, as he taught at Capernaum. And, and the, the response in verse 60 is this. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the question is, as Jesus taught these things, and this is a hard saying, what are the these things referring to? Now, it can be simply just, uh, you shall eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's at least that. But what I'm arguing is that this entire discourse, beginning at verse 26, is actually part of the entire hard saying. These are all hard sayings. They contain difficult sayings. And so at the end of it, uh, the, the Jews are latching on to various things, as we'll see even where Jesus came from, they're latching on to. That's difficult for them to understand. And what they really latched on to was what we'll look at in the coming weeks. But all of this is part of a hard saying. So what we're really given here are tests of discipleship. Do we really believe in Jesus or not? Do we have a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a testing of those following him. And so the test that we're looking at this week is, last week was, who satisfies you? Jesus was, am I enough? 
I gave you earthly bread. You seem content with that. Are you satisfied with me? Are you satisfied with your career, your homes, your houses? Whatever might be the case that you put your faith in, that you really look to to say, make me something. Fill me up. Give me a reason to live. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. You need to, you need to eat me. And now the question is, who comes to Jesus? It's a test of discipleship. Who can come to me? That's what Jesus is addressing, or one of the things that he is addressing. So I want us to walk through and notice seven things. Don't worry, some of these will be really quick. Uh, seven things. Number one, no one can save himself or herself. Secondly, God saves by drawing. Third, salvation comes by looking and believing. Four, salvation has no minimum standards. Five, you cannot out God's grace. Six, Jesus is God's only salvation. And finally, seven, Jesus is outwardly unimpressive. Now, at each point, we're going to look at uh, how these are really tests, part of the hard sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one I want us to take a look at is in verse 44. No one can save himself or herself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is really uh, what you might call a a centrally hard truth for the people who were listening to what Jesus uh, was saying. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Jesus is saying, not one of you in the crowd can choose actually to be my disciple. The only way you can come to me is if the Father in heaven that they think they believe in, the Jews would have said, yeah, we we trust the Father, we know the Father. The only way that you can actually save, be saved, is if the Father draws you. No one can do this unless the Father does it for you or to you. For I, I don't want to spend much time on this point except just to say this. You could argue this is really the heartbeat of the entire discourse that we're looking at here this morning. We can't save ourselves. You could make that argument. Beloved, that, that has a radical implication for our lives. It's humbling. Now, we've already spent a little bit of time in the service looking at that, so I don't want to belabor the point, but it's, it's very humbling. We may say, I chose God, but here's the backstory: God first chose you. God first chose me. Now, we, we do have faith. I hope all of us as Christians are saying, I do choose God. I'm not going to choose any other God. I'm not going anywhere else. I am going to serve the Lord. The only reason that you and I can say that is because God the Father has looked at us and called us in to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can say it. None of us could have come to Jesus uh, on our own at all. This creates, or it should create in us, a radical humility. The second thing I want us to notice is that God saves by drawing. Again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the word draw is literally this, to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion with implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling, propelling itself or in the case of persons is unwilling to do so voluntarily. So were the immovable rocks, okay, And God's drawing us in. We're the people who can't move anywhere. We're like uh, railroad cars sitting on a railroad line with no engine attached to it. We can't can't budge. And God has to draw us to himself in order for us to move. Uh, In Hosea 11, 1 to 4, we actually get an interesting portrait of this. I want to read it for you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. 
Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. I led them or I drew them with cords of kindness, the Lord's saying. That's how the Lord brings us, beloved. It's with cords of kindness. He, he leads us that way. Matthew Henry puts it this way, God does not drive us by force into his service, whether we would or not, nor rule us with rigor, nor detain us by violence, but he attracts us with love and endearment, all sweet and gentle, that he might overcome us with kindness. How does God do this? Here's how he draws us. John 12, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, said Jesus. Now, it's at least a reference to his work on the cross, maybe his work in the ascension when he pours out the Spirit, but a reference to his work on the cross. How does God draw us? How does he show us his love so that we're attracted by it? We come to see Jesus and all that God's done for us in him. When you look at how many of us are like the Jews and maybe a little bit scared of God, repelled by God, you know, we understand the fear of God, but it's not like a, like a fear, like, like, a, like an awe and respect. It's an I'm scared to death. I'm afraid I might step out of line. He's just going to crush me. I'm afraid I might touch a certain mountain, and then all of a sudden I'm dead. If that's our view of God, then, then here's what can change that. Take a look at what God did in the Lord Jesus Christ. He put his own son on the cross to bleed and die. He lifted him up and said, this is the salvation of the world. How can we be scared of that? That's what draws us into God. Jesus Christ is the glory of God, right? John makes that really clear in chapter 1. If this is who God is, a condescending God who's perfectly holy and yet perfectly loving and sacrificial, then why would we be scared of him? And once we see this love, it draws us in, it brings us in. It's like God is pulling us in to this. Because by nature, we might look at Jesus on the cross and say, well, this is weird. He just died for no reason. But once we come to see that we're sinners and that God put him on the cross to die in the place of sinners to give us the benefits, all of a sudden now that can draw us in. This is something that the Jews did not understand well at all. They thought, hey, anyone can have a relationship with the Father was formulaic, right? You're born of the children of Abraham. Got to be born of the right family. You're circumcised on the eighth day. You learn the Torah. You keep the commandments. You live in the land and everything will go well, and therefore you're a Jew and you're saved. That's what the Jews would have understood. That's what the Pharisees were all about. Just do everything right, go through the motions, be of the right lineage, and then you are indeed saved. Some of us think, might, might think the same way about Christianity. I'm born into a Christian home. I was baptized. I was catechized. I know the Bible really well. I've been moral my entire life. I've kept the laws, and I am, generally speaking, a really good person. If you ask anybody in the community, I'm a very good person. I live a nice life, therefore, I'm saved. But the real question, beloved, is this. Has God drawn you in? Have you been drawn in by his love? Is your Christianity based, is your faith based on your performance? If so, this will be a hard saying. Because you'll be thinking underneath, God didn't draw me. I came. I can do this. And Jesus is saying, no, no one can come to me, actually, unless the Father draws him. So has the Father drawn you? Is he drawing you? Has he brought you into the faith with the Lord Jesus Christ? The third thing that's difficult to 
uh, uh, chew on, you might say, is that salvation comes by looking and believing. Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now again, the, the, the rock that is hard to chew on in this saying is that those, those who are saved are simply saved by looking and believing. That's it. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him, and then we're saved. Then we have a relationship with the Father. That's the hard rock. Notice it has nothing to do with looking at your performance. The Pharisee might have said, look, you know, remember the Pharisee prayer in Luke chapter 18. Lord, I'm not like these Gentile sinners. I tithe. I live a good life. I'm a good moral person. That's looking at that, looking at our prayer life, looking at how we treat other people. And what, what Jesus is saying is that this is the will of the Father. Everyone who looks at Jesus and believes in him, those are the ones who are saved. So, beloved, the simple point is this. Who, where are you looking to be saved? I know it's, it's, it's like one of the most basic questions, right? It's why it's so hard. Things that we sometimes are... are, are tempted to forget about where are you looking to be saved are you looking to the church to save you because the church can't save you your church membership can't save you my church membership can't save me are you are you looking to well let's see how my kids turn out that'll give me standing before god how am i doing in my marriage how my how's my performance at work how do i look what do other people say of me Beloved, this is the central issue of salvation. This is the central issue of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Are you looking to Jesus? Do you trust in him? Because if you do, you're, you're saved. Then you have access to the Father. Then, then you're in. That's the, that's the joy and delight of the gospel. It's also the hard truth for those of us who are performance-minded, like the Jews were, like many of the fake disciples were. We want to add something. Jesus says, keep your additions at home. You can't add anything to this. You look at me and you believe. Spurgeon's uh, uh, conversion was, was famous, maybe because it was the, uh, comical what he said about the primitive Methodists um, in it. But he was, it was, there was a snowstorm one morning and, and the pastor couldn't make it to the church and he was out trying to go to a church and he turned into this old primitive Methodist chapel. And as he was sitting there, the, the pastor was actually Isaiah forty five twenty two Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And the, the, a layman stood up. He didn't know if he was a shoemaker or what. And, and Spurgeon said he went on and on and on a little bit preaching. And Spurgeon said when he was about at the end of his tether, in other words, had nothing more to say. The sermon was five or ten minutes. It was horrible. Um, uh, he, said, he said this. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do, young man, actually called out Spurgeon, but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I do not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. Beloved, that's what it is to be saved. That, that's a true test of discipleship. How do I know whether or not I'm saved? Right? Assurance of salvation issue. Here it is. Where are you looking to be saved? If you're looking to Jesus, you're a Christian. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, you're my hope. You're the hero of my life. You're the one who's turned my life around. You're the reason that I have access to the Father. If that's what we say and, and what we believe, then we're Christians. And we can be encouraged, comforted. The fourth thing I want us to notice from the passage is that salvation has no minimum standard. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never 
cast out. Why is this so hard? Again, think Jewish mindset, almost quasi-Pharisaical mindset. These are the people grumbling about, about Jesus and who will eventually start walking away. What, what would they have said? Maybe something like this. Whoever comes to me and has a pretty neat and clean life and who's been following the commandments, I will never cast out. Those are the people who can approach. Whoever's a really good Jew, a really good, nice person, they can approach and they'll never be cast out. So what Jesus does here is he offends, really, religious types. Now, this isn't overly surprising. Look, every organization or institution has a minimum standard, right? No shirt, no shoes, no service. That's the basic one. You, can't, you come into our convenience store, you've got to be dressed, or we're not going to be ringing your stuff up at the cash register. You have to be tall, this tall to ride this ride in an amusement park. Uh, if you are going to apply for uh, a professor position at uh, Duke and you haven't graduated high school, you haven't met the minimum standard, they're probably going to turn you away. The military has a minimum PT standard. I mean, every institution and every organization has a minimum standard. And here's what Jesus is saying. There is no minimum standard when it comes to the faith. Zero to be saved. This is astonishing. This is shattering. This destroys all the righteousness that Paul talks about in Philippians 3. I used to lean on being a Hebrew. The Hebrews, everything else, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. I consider it dung. Jesus shatters all that when he says what he says, beloved. There's no minimum standard. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For those of us who think that Christians are a homogenous group of people who look the same, think the same, like the same things, and are being fitted into some man-made mold rather than fitted into the image of Jesus Christ. This will be a difficult truth to swallow. No minimum standards. Beloved, that means that the person you or I today may hate, right here in Pella, in surrounding communities, may want to have nothing to do with, may despise, may think is beneath our time. God may save them tomorrow and bring them to hope and put them right in the middle of this fellowship and we've got to love him. Jesus isn't going to turn anybody away. He's not going to cast anyone out. Everybody is welcome to have access to the Father through Jesus. No minimum standards. That's, that's the hard saying that they're having to deal with. That's what they're having to chew over, one of the things. There's no intellectual minimum standards, praise God, so that those whose brains are massive and impressive have no advantage in being saved over those whose brains are, are small and maybe very distorted and not working at all. So that way someday if we're mentally handicapped, we're no farther from God than we were when our minds worked really well. There's no minimum moral standard. Take the worst of the worst. Do you know anybody who's, who pulled the trigger? Have you pulled the trigger? Who went through with the abortion operation? Who, who did the affair? You know, What's the worst of the worst in Pella? Every society has their, their worst sins, right? Pellas are certain. I'm not sure if, if I've hit the list right. What are the worst ones? Those people can be saved. People like you and me. And if we haven't done those things, it's simply because of the grace of God. That, that's it. Simply because of the grace of God. No minimum moral standards in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that song, Just As I Am, kind of nails it home. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. That's what a lot of people do, don't they? 
I'm going to rid my soul of this one dark blot. Then I can come to Jesus because I'll be acceptable to God. The songwriter says, just as I am and waiting not, I'm not going to wait to rid my soul of this one dark blot. Because if we wait, we're going to wait forever. (laughs) I'm going to come to Jesus now. I'm going to trust in Jesus now. I'm going to have a relationship with him now. And I'm also going to know that he loves me. I'm not going to think that he'll love me when I get rid of this sin. Just as I am, though, tossed about with many a conflict and many a doubt. Okay, so all my conflicts, all my doubts, the Lord still loves me even though I doubt his goodness? Yes. Our assurance isn't perfect, and it never will be. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. You mean I can come to the Lord poor, wretched, and blind? Yes. What, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because of your promise, I believe. Beloved, that's how we come to the Lord. That's how we continue to relate to the Lord. We bring nothing on our own. We simply come with our sin. God gives us his grace. Number five, you cannot out God's grace. This is another hard rock to chew. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Now, there are few relationships in this world that we can count on. Our spouses, we can be married for the rest of our life, but they'll die or we'll die. The relationship will come to an end. Relationships with our kids, with our family members, with our friends, all of these relationships can be good, but they will always come to an end. And there's always a point where that relationship can break. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to lose anyone. What God starts in us, he's actually going to bring to completion all the way down the line. He's not going to lose a single person. And one of the implications is this. It's not possible to out God's grace. Now, that, I hope that sounds antinomian to your ears, like, boy, this is going to lead to tons of lawlessness. Like, he just said, we can go sin. If that's what we're thinking, that we haven't really understood the goodness of God, we haven't understood the gospel. Beloved, it's not possible as a born-again Christian to out God's grace. It's not possible. I wonder how many of us are sitting here thinking that this is the will of God, that I don't let him go until the day I die, and that if I don't let him go and I live the life that's appropriate and good enough, then I won't lose him. And then I'll finally make it to the finish line. Here's what Jesus says. Not that you won't let him go, but that he won't let you go and me go. That's what he said. Well, how about this, Lord? You know what I did this past week. Lord, you know the thought I thunk. Lord, you know the word I spoke underneath my breath. Lord, you know the thing I did. Nobody else knows about it yet, but you know it. You're still not going to lose me. You're still not going to let me go. This promise is really valid for me that Jesus isn't going to let me go because I'm too bad. Think about this, beloved. Did our Lord Jesus Christ know every sin you were going to commit when he saved you? Did God know every sin you were going to commit when he decreed to save you? Of course. So what sin are you going to commit where Jesus says, well, I didn't figure this one into the equation. (laughs) I died for all of them, but that one I missed. The Father didn't make me pay for that sin. That was just too bad. That was over the top. Therefore, I'm losing this person. They're too bad. It's done. I can't hold on to that one. They're just too wicked, too evil. Beloved, that can never happen. God knows us down to the depths of our soul. He knows the worst of the worst. He knows the best of the best. And he has loved us anyways in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's loved us perfectly in him. So every one of us will make it all the way to the end. Why is this so hard? Because again, if we have a performance mindset, we're thinking, Jesus won't lose me. I won't lose him as long as we're good enough to be lovable. And we know from the rest of scripture that none of us is lovable 
None of us is good enough for God to love us. That's why Jesus had to die in our place. That's why he had to bleed. That wasn't a joke. That was the truth. You're all so wicked, so evil, so bad. None of you are lovable enough. I've actually got to put my only son on the cross to do for you what what you're just not able to do anymore. Adam and Eve lost the ability. So we can't out-sin God's grace. Just a side note, uh, just maybe something helpful. Sometimes this failure to understand why someone else who is a mess can be just as much of a Christian as those of us who might be less of a mess is due to our lack of understanding of how sanctification works and where God meets us where we are. Uh, just picture for a moment Paul, the apostle, comes into the faith, right? Within a few years out in the Arabian desert studying, etc., he's like the apostle of the apostles. How in the world? Paul, he had to get rid of a few things, right? Killing Christians, <laughs> murder, stop persecuting the church. But as far as outward appearance, he was obedient. He was serving God with a clear conscience. He was wrong-headed down the wrong path. But he was really trying to serve God with a clear conscience. And then he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Was there a lot to patch up in Paul's external life? No. Now you take the drug addict off the street who's been there and done that in all the worst ways. Been to prison. Committed murder. Been sleeping around. Been doing drugs. Can't hold a job down for his life. Lazy as the day is long. And he comes to Christ. In two years, is he going to look like Paul? Likely not. If... If perfect sanctification is the number 100 and somebody comes into the faith at a 90 and all they've got to really change is their motivations. Lord, I used, to, I used to do all this good stuff because I thought it made you love me more. Now I'm going to do it because you already love me and I'm saying thank you. That person may grow to a 91, right? Pretty impressive. Their life is impressive as far as looking like Jesus. Somebody comes into the faith at a 10. They may double their sanctification and only get to 20 and look horrible compared to the one who was at 90. Beloved, God meets us where we are, and he sanctifies us, and he makes, he says, look, these are the kind of people that won't inherit the kingdom of God. This is not against church discipline, which we are for and is necessary in the church. But beloved, God meets us where we are, and we are each growing from where we found him, or he found us. And it's all going to look different. And it's so easy for those of us who might be holier, and, and we we can really be holier. There, there's some in this room that, that, that are just more moral, more godly, more grown into the image of Jesus by the grace of God than the rest of us. And that's wonderful. It's all of God's grace. But let, let us not, like the Jews, start despising other people and thinking, well, they're beneath us then. No, God just met us at a different spot. We all have the same inheritance. We're all going to the same place. None of us can outsin God's grace. Just means they have a lot of growing to do in certain areas. And and now what can I do to help them grow? How can I serve them? How can I pray for them? Number six, Jesus is God's only salvation, verse forty five. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is a this is a big rock. <laughs> They will all be taught by God, Jesus is saying, okay? So God's the teacher, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, now every one of them would have raised their hand and said, I've learned from the Father. All the Jews, all the Pharisees, I've learned from the Father. He's saying everyone who's learned from the Father actually comes to me, but it was Jesus they wouldn't come to. So here's what he's saying indirectly. If you don't come to me, then you don't actually know the Father. 
if you don't come to me, then you have no relationship with the Father. In other words, if your God does not point to me, then it's a false God. That's a, that's a hard reality. And I know we live in a day and age where everybody likes to say, we all serve the same God. And maybe this isn't really relevant to us in our daily living in a highly religious town like Pella, but we all say, hey, we, plenty of people around the world say we all serve the same God. We just have different names for him. And what Jesus is saying is not even close. There's only one God, and he teaches about me. So if you know him, you will actually come to me because the Father's pointing to me. The Spirit's pointing to me is saying, Jesus, I'm the bread of life. So beloved, when we encounter things like that, when we encounter people saying, look, we, we all serve one God, we just have many names, we can hopefully kindly and, and generously and graciously say, actually there's only one God and, and let me tell you about his son Jesus and Jesus is the only way to the Father. And every other God's a false God. There's no hope in all these other gods. There really is only one way to get to the Father. It's an exclusive truth claim. Again, very difficult, especially for the Jews because they claim to love the Father but they hated Jesus. And if someone hates Jesus and they don't want to believe in Jesus and come to him, then they're not saved and they don't have a relationship with the Father. And the last thing I want us to notice, and with this we'll close, Jesus or Jesus is outwardly unimpressive, verses 41 to 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? This may actually be the hardest part of this saying. It's what they pick up on. It's what they talk about. It's what they grumble about. He said, I'm the bread come down from heaven. If that's the case, then why do we know his father and mother? Why do we, why do we know Joseph and Mary? Obviously, they're not talking about the, 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 the incarnation, the, the virgin birth. They just think Joseph's his biological father, Mary's his biological mother. How in the world did he come down from heaven? How does this work? No way that this can happen. But Jesus was born to Mary, and his earthly parents who raised him were Joseph and Mary. Truly, he cannot be anything very special. Look, if Jesus was sitting in a suit and tie on Herod's throne in Jerusalem, the Jews, many of these people would believe in him. No problem. He's impressive. He's got kingly stock in him. We're going to follow him. Just like today, if, if Jesus was actually sitting in the White House, dressed in a tuxedo, surrounded by Secret Service people and being flown around in the Air Force One or driven in limousines that are bulletproof, plenty of Americans would trust in him. Oh yeah, he looks the part. But here's Jesus. Here's the King of Kings. Here's why his claims are so difficult for them to swallow and, and for people to swallow. It's really the, the, the heartbeat of the scandal of the gospel. You're telling us that you're standing in front of us, looking us in the face, and you're about five, eight, six foot, however tall he was, right in the eye. You've got skin just like mine, hair follicles. You've got a little bit of a beard, maybe skin on your nose and feet that are size 10 or whatever size they were. And you're telling me that you're from heaven, (laughs) that you're God. You're not just saying I'm from heaven. You're saying I am. Well, you're claiming to be Jehovah. The same name that God used to tell Exodus and Exodus, Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Who do I tell him sent me? I am who I am. You're saying that you're that God who led us out of, out of Egypt, who sustained us with manna, who was the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. How, how does this work? And they couldn't get their minds, they grumbled about it. This was one of the linchpins that they couldn't get over, beloved. Don't tell us you're from heaven. Don't tell us you're God. And that's exactly what Jesus was going to back away from. The scandal of the cross for the Jews was this. 
they knew there's no way to be saved unless Jehovah is the one who saves them. And here standing in front of them is Jesus saying, I'm Jehovah. You've got to believe in me or you're not going to be saved. God come down. It's a stumbling block. Lord, save us any other way but through this Jesus. Why, why was it such a stumbling block? Do you remember his beginnings? Who saved you, beloved? Who saved me? A baby born in a lowly manger. Wasn't even room for him in the inn. That's your Savior. That's my Savior. Who saved you? The son of a no-name woman living in a no-name town whose earthly father, not, not biologically, was a no-name carpenter. That's your Savior. The itinerant preacher didn't have a retirement account, didn't have, you know, a, a place to live in, a, a place to lay his head. Foxes of the hole, birds of the air, they have more than he does. That's your Savior. Who's your Savior? The teacher whose students even fled. Where were the disciples when Jesus was hanging on the cross defending him? No, scared to death. That's, that's your Savior. Meek, lowly, humbled. No one getting it. People scared to be even associated with him because they're afraid they're going to die. Even after his resurrection, they're locked in the upper room after Friday because they're scared that they're going to be crucified too. Who's your savior? The one that the ultimate military authority in the world brought 600 men into the court, dressed them up in purple, spit on them, beat them on the head, and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Right. This is your king, huh? Well, he's a defeated king now. We're going to mock him. We're going to crucify him. Beloved, who's your savior? The one who bled, the one who died, and the one who didn't do a thing about it. Humbling, isn't it? That's our Savior. His, fa- his mother was Mary. He lived in Nazareth about 2,000 years ago. His ministry headquarters was at Capernaum. He ministered to people. He never broke one of God's commandments. And you can meet him face to face. And if he came down and he stood right in front of you and right in front of me, and he said, I'm your only hope. I'm the bread of life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he looked just like you, except he didn't sin. What would be your response? Would you hate him? Would you want to kill him? Would you say, no way does the mighty, majestic God of heaven and earth come this far down. No way can you be him. You're not impressive enough, good enough. Or would your response be, you've got to be kidding me. This is amazing. God would come down this far. This is what the Lord's doing to save you're going to go to this length to save someone like me? This is unbelievable. I'm in. <laughs> I, I can't go anywhere else. You have the words of eternal life. I'm staying right here. Beloved, Jesus did just that. He did come down here. And he did hang and he did bleed and people mocked him. And it looked horrible. None of us would stand at Calvary saying, this is really impressive. All of us sit at Calvary and say, before the resurrection, this is horrendous. We don't want to be associated with him. That's why all the disciples walked away. We don't want our lives to go like that. He, is, he can't be our king. Beloved, that's your king. Humble, lowly, the off-scouring of the world, being treated like a slave, a foreigner, a criminal. He's that known, that low, that's your God. That ought to melt our hearts that God would come this far down to remedy our situation. 
we ought to just sing. Instead of thinking this is a hard word, a hard saying, like, I'm, I'm better than that. We ought to say, I can't believe God would do this for me. I can't believe he'd actually come down and, and be born into this world just to do this for me. What does this create in us as people? Oh, a humility that's just unbelievable, right? Because after hearing about this great news and how vulnerable Jesus is and approachable and, and suffering and God coming all the way down, all of a sudden now we all have to come down off our pedestals, whatever they might be, right? We've got to go out into the world. We've got to start being real with people and honest with people, just meeting them right where they are because Jesus met us right where we are. So, beloved, I hope that none of us are offended by this lowliness. I hope none of us are offended by the requirement of Christianity that we all be humbled because our Savior came and lived a servant's life and died a slave's death. In fact, I hope all of us are really encouraged by it because now we don't have anything, any ears to put on. We don't have to go out into the world this week. This is amazing. This is encouraging to prove to others that we're good enough to be Christians because none of us are. Jesus is the only one who's good enough to be a Christian. He's the only one good enough. And if we're in him, then we are made righteous too. Let's pray.